we I think we fall into this trap of, oh, this was objective because look, it's on a spreadsheet. It's averaged out against all these numbers. There was a rubric for it. So therefore it had a good process mm-hmm. because I think it's easier to, to, to live in a world where we believe that. Welcome back to The Broken Copier, a conversation about teaching. My name is Jim Mares. My name is Marcus Luther. So some reminders about the show. This is an independent and listener-supported podcast. The goal of the show is to connect with a passionate, diverse group of educators to bring helpful analysis and collaboration to folks working in the classroom. Most importantly, the show is about saying thank you to all the teachers out there, past, present, and future, who understand their classroom practice through a lens of equity and change. If this is your first time listening, welcome. We'd love to hear from you on social media at The Broken Copier, and you subscribe, and you can subscribe to other episodes and writing at thebrokencopier.substack.com. If you'd like to support, we'd love for you to rate and review the podcast wherever you stream or to text your friends a link to an episode so they can tune in as well. So, Marcus, uh, there's a lot to talk about today. <laughs> yeah, and this is definitely going to be one of those times where it probably stretches beyond just today. Uh, but today we're going to talk about how a decade into teaching for both of us, we personally just feel about grading uh, conceptually. Uh, we've we've touched on this before, but we want to center our conversation around that for the next couple episodes. Uh, Jim uh, sent me a very well uh, mathy article uh, the other evening, and it was very much predicated on the analogy about the meaning and limitation of pi, the concept of pi, but it was meant to talk about our own limitations with grading and how we should think about them potentially or change how we think about them as teachers. So uh, two English teachers are going to take the concept of pi and run with it. So uh, get ready for that. But before we dive in fully, I'm just going to give you uh, your bell ringer question for the day, which is always a good thinker for the audience. And it's a question I ask my students sometimes. I think it's a good entry point. So The question is, if I went to you at the beginning of your high school career and I offered you a deal and the deal was this, here is your transcript, here is your high school diploma, you got A's in every single class, I hand this to you today, you walk out of the room, you have a 4.0, top-notch grades, you can go forward in your life with that diploma, you don't have to attend any of the classes. Don't have to demonstrate any mastery of learning. Do you take that deal? Why or why not? Me personally, absolutely not. Um, I think... So, clarifying question about this hypothetical. Am I a 14-year-old ninth grader or a 17 or 18-year-old 12th grader? Or does it really matter? Well, let's let because I do get like there's like developmental options like a 14 year old your freedoms aren't the same. Uh, right. Let's let's shift it then. What if I told you that at the beginning of your college experience? Definitely not. I no. I, okay. Talk definitely to me. not. I mean, first of all, this is a bias and like a part of my personality. Um, 
that I think a lot of teachers have, and perhaps like we should recognize this more that not everyone has this, but I, I love school, man. Like I didn't care about the grades and I got, I got good grades. I got decent grades, but I loved being in a classroom and sitting with other people and talking in my case about English literature, old, you know, old English literature. That's, I loved it. I loved it in high school. I loved reading the handmaid's tale. I loved my Shakespeare classes in high school. I mean, I had um, a very privileged, but phenomenal education and I, I genuinely loved it. And I felt like um, there were, of course there were times when I felt like school was a drag and wished I didn't have to do this or, you know, didn't want to do this homework, this, whatever it was, but I felt, I always felt like grades were um, affirmation and recognition to the secondary component, which was the stuff that I knew um, and was able to do. And like having the time and space to explore that and practice that and get feedback from the teacher, to me, that was what it was about. Um, and unfortunately I think now it's not about that anymore. And I, and I, well, maybe I, I certainly think it's not about that to some students, uh, or to a lot of students who see learning as very transactional for submitting one thing in exchange for X amount of points. And I think we can get into that later within the grading, but, uh, our grading conversation, but yeah, I, I mean, for I, I would not have taken that deal. I would have wanted to go to school and be with people and um, and learn and talk about the stuff that we were learning. I, I don't know. That's the best answer that I have. Do you think that it's shifted though? The what you know, just to clarify, you you noted that you think it's different now with grades for the student experience than it was. Yeah, for sure. I think that. Um. I mean, I have, I have a lot of thoughts on this, so I'm trying to, we maybe can dive not, in. Yeah. We, I'm just, yeah. Let's just, today. Yeah. It's my, a good bell ringer naturally brings yeah. the classroom discussion into its essential question. And that's what right. I feel like I did here. So yeah, it was masterful. I think basically that we, when I was, okay. When I was in high school, we did not have access. We didn't really know our grades until the end of the quarter or sometimes like we I, I remember like I had a good idea of my grades right like in whatever class it was in I knew that I had I got A's and B's on certain tests and quizzes and like that was leading up to my score and I knew in general that I was doing well, but I didn't have what many students have today, which is like this dashboard with every little exit ticket filled in. And some exit tickets are worth 10 points and some exit tickets are worth five points. And it's like kind of up to the teacher discretion. And every in most of the schools that I've worked in, almost all the schools that I've worked in, it's your grade is how many how many total points did you get? out of how many possible points in certain different categories and like grading policies get to like really in the weeds around, well, how many 
performance assignments, for example. My school, my school, the two categories are performance and practice, and we're trying to shift towards mastery-based learning. It's going okay from what I can tell, but there's not like a lot of, it's not, I don't think it's where we want it to be. But yeah, my, my big take as we go into this grading conversation is that students and families are actually way oversaturated with data. And it becomes really hard to make meaning of that data as a student and hard to prioritize what to do or even how to help your student. Um, if you have if you have so many different grades from so many different teachers posted all the time, I like the idea of transparency in general, but I don't know. It, it's not that's something that I've been wondering about or struggling with recently. So Jim's solution to the problem with transactional grading is obfuscation. Uh, so Jim, no, I would. <laughs> Jim writes this beautiful essay yeah. on Beowulf. And the professor or the teacher comes down from on high without any explanation at all and says, Jim, this is an A minus essay. And here, let me scrawl some illegible notes along with my reasoning. Because that's yeah. how grading used to be. Like you would yeah. turn something in and a teacher would just say, this looks like a C plus or this is a C minus. But I knew your dad when I was in school. So it's a C instead yeah. or even a B minus. Like I get your point about the oversaturation and we'll hit how like I think there's this false sense of objectivity by putting a bunch of numbers and rubrics and rationales behind it. And I think that's mm -hmm. what the article you brought up noted. Like sometimes we try to like convince ourselves that we have a really sound measurement because we've quantified everything and some mm -hmm. things aren't quantifiable. So I, I acknowledge that. I know I'm mocking it, but I, I do acknowledge no, yeah, that. But I also look at the way it used to be. I'm like, that can't be better. Like, no, especially given the power structure that's already in place with teachers. And I guess that's where I'm struggling is I, I really am confident the way it used to be is not okay in terms of right. lack of transparency, obfuscation, uh, and just what that meant in terms of power dynamics with schools. I also think the way we're doing things right now is also not okay. And I also don't have a great answer. I, I know a lot of people have are taking the ball and running with their own philosophy around grading or even like ungrading right now. And we're going to talk about uh, some of those a little bit today and then take questions potentially to bring in next time. But I guess I'm just like really struggling right now to kind of know where my convictions should be, which is a weird thing because mm -hmm. right now, like I have like, Later today, we'll probably open up the old grade book and put a few grades in. Like, we are doing this right now. Both of us have been doing this for a while. And humbly, I can say, I don't necessarily have great answers right now. Well, I don't either. And that's why um, I want this so people know. I think Marcus and I are both entering into this, like, this is actually a legitimate problem that we are are both sort of thinking about. And um, you know, we've been talking a lot about AI and, and we're, but we're moving on and I don't know, I hope, my hope is that we, you know, we're starting out a grading conversation off, like authentically explore, exploring this as an issue, um, to think about what does, what do we want to incentivize and how do we want to grade? Because it's very clear from my end in my own school's experiences and online that like people 
are very convicted in one way or the other and think that such and such is the best practice. And maybe it is, but I don't know. For me, I think there's a lot more room for like humility and actually slowing down and talking some of this stuff through. Um, yeah, I think that's definitely where I'm coming from on it. Okay. Let's, in terms of your concerns, is your concern more right now when you think about grading on the teacher side of things or the student side of things? And not in terms of like negative intentions. I think we're being like positive focus on both sides of those. But do you think the problem with grading is that it's not fair to what students are experiencing or it's a, the current grading practices, which are all over the place, are not accurately getting what students are doing? Or is it more on the teacher's side that you're concerned where teachers assume that they have an accurate, reliable, fair, objective system that isn't doing what they think it's doing? Which side are you more concerned on? Probably, I think, I think my main concern would land under the teacher side bucket because of the way that I've seen the best way I could think to describe my concern with grading is that it doesn't incentivize it doesn't incentivize the actions that I think are healthy for learning. Um, and what I mean by that is I like I can use my advisory for example like. In our school, we have a 20-minute advisory block. And what you're supposed to do in that advisory block is open up PowerSchool and take a look at your classes. And you're, you're supposed to say, all right, well, what is my lowest grade? And is there any missing work or homework? Or what can I do? You know, it's meant to be like an organizational get-ahead type of space. And I will see students with, and in, and in our case, there's like I said, performance assessments and practice assessments and performance are supposed to be weighted at 70%. Practice assessments are supposed to be weighted at 30% of your overall quarter grade. And I'll see students attempting makeup work or homework assignments that are in the practice category from weeks ago. And they also have a very large performance assessment, like an essay that they're not working on. And the student, the problem there is that the student isn't conceptually grasping what they need to do, the best area to allocate their time and energy to improve their grade. And to me, that, that just speaks to students. To me, that's like the students are confused. They don't know like, where to put their time and energy. And granted, this is more like ninth and 10th graders, 11th and 12th graders, like they've gone through this and they have a better sense of it. And, but I don't know, like, I just think I, my concern is like students are sort of drowning in makeup work sometimes. And it's like, why is makeup work even a thing? Like, what is makeup work? What are we doing? Um, but yeah, I think my, my core problem with grading is, what does it incentivize? How, how is the gradebook set up to, for students to understand how to work the system? You know, a lot of students are really good at video games. And video, to me, video games 
are like that would that would be how I would really like my grade book to work, which is you progress through a certain series of challenges or concepts and then you get to like the end of the level and there's like a harder thing and you pass that and maybe you have a couple different times to do it um and then you move on and you're on to the next thing like that's kind of a an analogy that i think about sometimes with grading is like leveling up in video games um but it's you know that's not perfect but for yeah for me it's the incentives it's it's how how are we setting things up for students to do work independently that is most targeted towards the most essential stuff that they need to do. Cause I see a lot of students just not doing the things using their time on stuff. That's not really that essential. But it sounds to me now though, that you're saying that you want students to be better at the transactional game and to design it. Uh, video games are incredibly transactional as someone who has not played a video game in like a decade. Uh, I, I think I'm fair to say that like they're designed to be transactional experience wise. Like I do this, I get this, I go here, I do that. Like, and I guess you're right that you want students to play this game, but going back to your initial point, you, I feel like you think that the transactional nature is the problem in itself, right? Let's, let's break this down to the core. Yeah, that's a good point. I think I guess I use the video game analogy because I understand that I'm working within this like system of points. Mm -hmm. Perhaps in my ideal world, I wouldn't use the video game analogy. I'm, I, I'm not sure, but I do. Yeah, you're right. I, my problem, my problem with it is that grades, that grades are, the whole the whole point and purpose of learning whereas like in an english classroom if i really think back and this is something that i want to do much better uh moving forward and i don't know if it'll i'll be able to do it next year or this year but you know i've been thinking a lot about students being really reluctant to write and why you know like why I have a student who in the whole first semester was not writing much at all, says he hated it, doesn't like writing. And we've had some meetings with him and his family. And recently he's been writing a lot and turning in a bunch of really good work and working really hard. And something has changed for him that is, is not about the grade because frankly he was okay with grades that weren't that spectacular and i don't think he was okay with like i don't think he was i don't think he enjoyed it but his his low grades in the first semester were not enough to get him to turn it around within that semester but something has changed with him because now He's, you know, and we have our own issues with timed writing and whatnot. But like the other day he came in and I had a timed handwritten essay draft for rhetorical analysis. I said, okay, 45 minutes, handwrite uh, a thesis and two body paragraphs. Um, this is what you want to do. Remember, this is what rhetorical analysis is looking for. Go ahead and go. 
And a lot of times during that time, I'll circulate and check in with students, especially if they're not doing much and just sitting there. Do you have questions? Do you need help, et cetera? Nothing for him. He, this was a student who was continually falling asleep in class, not doing a lot of work. And he, he wrote a great essay and he, I, he got an A on his first draft. So I'm bringing up that example because that is the kind of change. That's the kind of change in the incentive that I, that I want to see. And it, it's, it, to me, it doesn't come from the grade. It comes from a larger sense of, actually, I want to know how to write well. And I see this as legitimate practice. And the other quick point that I'll make about this, in terms of incentivizing like your work as a writer, I mean, you and I don't write stuff for a grade we write stuff to publish it. We write stuff for other people to read it. And I think that is a that aspect of publishing and having your work actually be read by a wider audience is a big thing that's missing in my classroom. Um, that would probably, like if that were the incentive, if it were the incentive that to, to publish and really get authentic feedback from an audience that was not necessarily your teacher. I think the writing would be a lot better. And I think it would, because that's much more aligned to why you write in the first place. Because if I'm right, if I have to write something in order to have a grade for it, like then it's a chore, then it's a task. I don't know. So the measurement itself can create some strange incentive structures that make students not want to do it. <laughs> Yeah, and I think different students respond to the game of grades in different ways at different times of the year. Uh, and I, I appreciate the anecdote, but I want to pin a point you made. You said the student got an A. Uh, like, because let's really deconstruct this conversation. How do you know that's A-worthy without going into like too deep of your like deep dive of like AP Lang rubrics? Yeah. So it's A-worthy because... I feel so the so the way that I explain it to students the the bar to get an A on the first draft is not the same as the bar to get an A on the typed draft. So A the definition of an A changes based on the time of the course. Uh no, it it changes based on the task, right? So like it's not re, like I don't necessarily think it's reasonable to to have on your on your first draft like if you in order to get an a on the first draft you need to have a clear thesis and you need to have two two paragraphs that are in in this case with rhetorical analysis you are first of all the paragraphs themselves are complete you have a clear assertion and evidence and like you're making the effort to link that evidence on the final draft, when you've had time to peer revise and get feedback and type it up later to say, okay, this um, text that I'm analyzing, this line that I'm analyzing, in rhetorical analysis, you talk a lot about like tone and purpose. Is this speaker actually, am I correct in saying that this is... Um, 
a philosophical tone or an aggressive tone? Is it actually what that is? Am I correct in saying that this speaker is appealing to the audience's sense of value or justice or democracy? On the first draft, what I want to have happen is you, what I want to have happen is you can be mistaken. Like you can make some of those mistakes and still get an A because it's your first draft and you maybe haven't like, there's still some stuff that you need to talk through or you're not, you're not correct about. And then once you've had the opportunity to get some feedback and type it up and like revise syntax and sentence structure, that bar for an A is, is more challenging because I'm look I'm trying to, I'm, I'm reading their papers much more closely and grading the papers much more specifically on the rubric. Okay. And I, I appreciate this example. I think it makes all the sense in the world. So I'm not like criticizing the grading practice, but I think it's incredibly important to what the, the article you talked about right. uh, was because the article, the quote that resonated with me was when the writer uh, pointed out that quote, most measurements in contrast are impossible it is only the simplest objects we have any hope of measuring. And the idea here was that we like to pretend that we have objective measures for things that are incredibly complex. Because in mm-hmm. the example you gave, which I agree with, like your practice, you, you acknowledge that what an A means is different based on the context in which the students are writing versus first draft versus revision. You mm-hmm. acknowledge that there are multiple variables that fit within this window of an A. So it's not a single variable. You're bringing in different aspects of their writing, which I do as well my classroom and you acknowledge use the phrase I want like that you have some subjectivity in saying these are the parameters I am looking for I am bringing in and creating this measure as a teacher which Mm -hmm. I know is aligned to the AP exam and it's coming from all these different aspects but just taking a step back think of every class you've ever taken and how much subjectivity comes into defining what an A is on a given task on a given course, like, I think we pretend like the moment we say, here's the rubric, here's what an A is, here's a B is, voila, this is the objective measure of learning. And that's incredibly subjective when we really break it down. Like, who says an A is an A is an A? Uh, mm-hmm. And like, the actual construct is problematic And I think right now we have a lot of teachers who are willing to engage in that more than they used to. Like this idea of deconstructing how grades are actually arrived at from the first point. And I know students are too, because we're being more transparent. And that's a good thing of saying, here's what the rubric is. Uh, There's another quote in the article that said, rationality is overrated. And part of me wants to like, just throw up my hands and say, let's be open that grades are a really imperfect measure and almost a way of like having control and power as a teacher more than anything. Uh, so that's also, I think people who are critiquing the grading system, I'm sympathetic to that because mm-hmm. I look at my own practices to like flip the mirror towards me. There's a lot of subjectivity that goes into it. Even when I'm doing everything possible to be transparent and fair and consistent, there's a lot of things in there that you could push back on uh, from an objective critique. Mm-hmm. Um, real quick point for context. Um, I did, 
the the name of the article. We should probably state that so people yeah. know know what we're talking about halfway through the episode. Uh, so this article was post. Uh, this article was posted recently, and the the reason that I brought it into the podcast was because the name of the uh, article is the end of grading: how the irrational mathematics of measuring, ranking, and rating distort the value of stuff, work, people, everything. Um, so it was it was published in Wired um, this month. And I brought it in because a another teacher friend of mine sent it to me and I was reading through it. And yeah, like the what you're talking about, what you're naming here is to me the core of the problem, which is like measuring stuff is actually really hard and imprecise. And it is true that it is true that teachers, yeah, I do think that there's there can be too much subjectivity. Like I really, I really, for example, am hesitant, and I don't think it's good uh, to have participation grades. For example, um, like I've had, I had a teacher tell me this year, like, oh, I'm gonna have a work ethic grade, and it's like, whoa, <laughs> are you sure? Because to me, that's just like opening up the doors to saying, you know, if students are disrespectful or like they're not doing anything or apathetic, it's just like punishing. Like it's to me, it's like I get where it's coming from, but I can't really see it as any other thing than just like a completely subjective way to use the gradebook to punish students who like don't appear to be doing what they're supposed to be doing and not a measurement at all of like anything that they can know or do, which should be what grades are. But many teachers use those around the country. I have had participation points in my grade book in early years of the career. Like mm -hmm. it's, I agree. Like, and all these biases, you know, come into that process that doesn't have a strong rubric. Like, there are, I think as we're like being open about different grading practices and ideas, there's also just really harmful ones. And mm -hmm. it's, I think it's fair to acknowledge that too. But I also think like I loved in the article, they pointed out that which the study that I've seen before about how they've done a study on judges who are giving sentences for parole and the judges are less likely to grant parole if they've just had lunch than those who are giving those decisions right before lunch when they're hungry. There's also been one in certain regions of the country that based on the recent uh, college football game uh, outcome, if the local team won, there were more favorable sentences the week after. So if judges giving sentences for people's lives are incredibly subjective based on the context and their own personal mood, don't you think teachers are when they're grading analytical essays of rhetorical analysis at time? Like, can you separate that bias from the grading? I know that we build in these rubrics and we, we say, I'm sure you do to me, like I do, like, hey, look at the rubric. If you think that I made a mistake, please let me know. Well, look, I, I make mistakes before in the grade book. Please talk to me and try to be really open and humble about that. But I think you're right the work ethic grades and stuff like that's on the end like the idea of like oh you didn't go to the bathroom x time so here's some extra credit like right. incredibly problematic and should yeah. have no room in the grade book at all but then i look at the better practices and they're still subjective they're, like it all, it all is part of the same subjective 
problematic system, a system that I don't have a good replacement for either. I'll acknowledge mm-hmm. that as well. And I think it would be chaos if we just took it away. But I just, uh, right now I'm just in a, a very like, I don't know what the answer is place. And I'm trying to be really reflective and humble in the face of that. Yeah. Which I think is where we should be. I would say, so two quick things. The first is I do. Okay. If we are going to have grades, right. Which they don't seem to be going. I think we're going to have grades in schools for a very long time. I don't think that they're going away. If we are going to have grades, then what that means is, and I know that this sounds basic, but it means one of the essential jobs of the teacher is to know their rubrics really well, to know that, to know the measurement systems really well. Um, and to be really good at them, because I think being skilled at actually assessing work and having a very, very clear vision of how the rubric functions and what the bar is to get an A, I do think that that's possible. I think that it's really hard to do. And like, I would never say that I would like rubric norming. I don't care how long I've been a teacher is always valuable to me always because that is the foundation I think for eliminating, eliminating as much as possible uh, subjectivity within the grading. Um, but also like, I wonder, and my, my, so that's, that's the one thing, making sure that teachers are really good at being accurate and having a super clear vision for how the points are distributed and how you earn an A. What year in your career do you feel like you are incredibly confident that you reached that level? Um, I would say when I started teaching in Brooklyn. Which is year? Uh, which was year seven. So think around the country. What percentage yeah, yeah. of students, just using you as the parameter of, un, like, just we're going to pretend Jim is the teacher everywhere. What percentage of students right now are in classes getting grades from year one to six version of gym grades that will affect their transcript, their college opportunities, their learning, like they're getting the imperfect measures. Now, I mean, now we're getting perfectly objective measures from year seven on, but even granting that. that I mean, not really it, either. Like, no, I, I know, but you know? even significant percentage of students currently, if we use that analogy, are getting imperfect grades if we just Mm -hmm. use your career as the norm and i think it's a fair one i think i would say like i have the exact same type of answer so i'm not saying it's better or worse but i do think you acknowledging that it takes time to reach a reliable place as a grader because i remember year one it was just ridiculous the idea that we were putting grades in the grade book and affecting student careers and in doing so with like there's a high percentage of students right now who have year one to five teachers and those teachers they might have more than half of their teachers especially students in schools that are struggling uh yeah 
it just like, sorry, it just like blows my mind. Even us being, I think, pretty generous towards teachers and ourselves. That's a really big problem. Mm-hmm. I would, I would also add too. It's year seven because year five and six of my career, I was working as an instructional coach with TFA. So I wasn't actually grading, but I would also add in a big point with that, which was when I was working as an instructional coach for TFA, I, I was supposed to score teachers on these teacher rubrics. And I was like, this is absurd. Like the rubric is so the rubric itself, the rubric language for scoring teachers on that is, was in many ways, very nebulous. And I could only, I was coaching like over 15 teachers across the state of Arkansas. If I was, and I was working wild hours and no matter how hard I worked, I couldn't actually see a teacher more than like twice in a quarter. Um, three times if I was being like, if it was like a really high, I mean, it's, it's, it's not okay. It's just, I just wanted to, to add that in because it's like teachers are also being evaluated on super subjective rubrics that do not, that do not have the type of data to confidently say, Oh, you're at this level on the rubric. And that impacts teacher pay, that impacts teachers' promotions or contents that they want to teach. I mean, it's just, it's, I feel like we've really lost, lost the ball here, like in this pretend scape of numbers. But I think the pretend scape of numbers, like that's the problem in the sense that, because like you're talking about like Charlotte Danielson rubric, one through four rating on these things. Once it becomes a number, once we like we as you're going through the process, even like grading an essay, etc., the process is messy. You're leaving feedback. There's comments. You're noticing like, oh, it's this or it's this on the rubric, etc. Once you write the number down, and then that number is on a spreadsheet, and then it's next to all these other numbers, and then it becomes this final grade, which is a number, mm-hmm. and you get further away from the process. We I think we fall into this trap of oh this was objective because look, it's on a spreadsheet. It's averaged out against all these numbers. There was a rubric for it. So therefore it had a good process Mm -hmm. because I think it's easier to to live in a world where we believe that, that these numbers, when we look back on our own grades that were relatively good throughout our experience, like that we played the game the right way, but like without acknowledging that the game itself was incredibly flawed And I think we, and again, as I say this, I have no idea what the better alternative is. I don't have faith in a lot of the alternatives in the current moment that are being offered that they would be the right direction to go uh, and not create immense chaos. But I just, I keep coming back to it. I'm broken record on this or a broken copier uh, Mm -hmm. that I think that the, the right answer is humility right now. And we need to not, go to our defenses and say, oh, here's the way to make gradient itself better if the entire construct is problematic. Uh, we just need to be really humble about what we're doing as teachers. And I think maybe in a, a future episode, talk about how that humility should translate into practice in the current moment. Because I think there's the philosophical conversation about where do we need to head from here. 
But there's also the pragmatic conversation of what do you tell a teacher, year one to year five teacher? Uh, mm-hmm. What do you do with grading if you're acknowledging all these flaws and problems and you're giving grades this week? What's the right approach or you're designing your syllabus for next year or you're having a conversation about grades with your colleagues for next year? What is the mindset we would recommend for those? Because I think there's two different paths. I think we should take both of them uh, going forward. And I think hopefully we get some uh, feedback from listeners about what directions you'd like us to head or where you're curious about if you want to make the plug for that opportunity too. Yeah, absolutely. So I think, you know, we're coming to the end of this conversation and I'm feeling like very unresolved, uh, which is the point. I think that that's how people should feel right now about grading. And Marcus and I would really love to hear about any type of grading policy, because I think this is a really big conversation. So if you're listening and would like to talk to us about how grades work, um, you can go to podinbox.com slash broken copier and tell us about your grading systems. Tell us about extra credit. Tell us about late work, makeup work, quizzes, retakes, really anything that you think is um, connected to this question of grading and how we measure, like how do we measure student achievement and success and knowledge and all that. Um, Cause I think that there's, there's just a lot to say and, it's somewhat surprising to me as like it's it's it is surprising to me how unaligned uh we are in education and i think that's really where i'll I'll, that's my big takeaway is just like wow we are doing all kinds of different things and grades almost mean nothing um yeah that's kind of where i'm at (laughs) yeah nihilism 101 uh yeah perfect yeah. So anyhow, I appreciate this. And I appreciate you letting me push back on you as an example of in the same way that I push back on myself and my own practices right now. Uh, I think that's a good starting point is oh, yeah, let's look sure. at our own practices. Let's look at where we can get better, but also just that the H word humility, uh, because I think that's the starting point going forward. And I think if nothing else, that's what we want to embody as a value with this discussion and many others. So we're looking forward to hearing feedback and uh, good luck with the rest of your week. And uh, until next time, uh, we'll see what the grades are looking like then. All right. Thanks, Marcus. Have a good one. The Broken Copier is an independent, listener-supported podcast for teachers. The show is written, hosted, and produced by Marcus Luther and myself, Jim Mares. Thanks to Alberto Lugo, a former student of mine, for writing and producing original intro music. Born and raised in Brooklyn, Alberto is an independent DJ and music producer based in New York City. You can find his work on Instagram at DJ Synchro and explore his portfolio at djsynchro.weebly.com. Thanks to Tom Chitari, a jazz musician, composer, and teacher based in Australia. Right now, you're listening to Woodstock from his album Garden, available on Spotify. You can stream all his music on Spotify under the name Uncivilized, on Instagram at BandUncivilized, and online at UncivilizedTom.com. You can even sign up for remote guitar lessons with Tom, just like I do. Thanks to my sister, Courtney Malavik, for the graphic design you see on our social media and episode posts. Thanks to Brandon Piasecki for helping to get this project off the ground. You can leave us an audio message 
at podinbox.com slash brokencopier. We might be able to respond and feature it in the next episode. The goal of the show is to connect with a passionate, diverse group of educators, bring helpful analysis and collaboration, and celebrate everyone doing the hard work in the classroom. We hope to connect and direct time, resources, and energy towards concrete efforts that will improve student outcomes, especially in marginalized and underserved communities. We are not the only ones doing this. We want to honor and say thank you to the many educators out there, past, present, and future, who already understand their classroom practice through a lens of equity and change. We'd love to connect with you, hear about what you're doing, and give you a space to share your work. If you want to support the show, you can help us grow and connect for free. Reach out on social media at The Broken Copier, text an episode link to your friends in education, or even share an episode to your own social media feeds. You can email thoughts, feedback, and ideas to thebrokencopier at substack.com. You can also read other essays and thoughts on teaching at thebrokencopier.substack.com, where we publish all of our episodes available wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks for listening. Thank you.